Being the Worst, Episode 41. Recorded Tuesday, December 15, 2015. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst podcast. Audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsman. With your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdulid. In this episode, Carrie and Renat start a new development project from scratch. They discuss the plan with caveats, then talk through the approach to getting started. And now, here are Carrie and Renat. All right, Renat, it's late December 2015. I think we published like two episodes this year. So uh, not batting a thousand or anything, but uh, we have, uh, there you hear the vacuum in the background. We're just going to roll with it. Sorry, guys. Uh, on the day we normally are going to be recording, uh, we're not going to have the cleaning crew here, we hope. But uh, please just uh, ignore that for now. <laughs> so, Renat, we uh, we got together. We tried to pick a regular recording day that we're going to actually try to stick to, but no promises other than we really are going to try this time and judge us by our results, right? Absolutely. <laughs> cool. What I thought we would do um, in this one was we would just maybe explain to the audience what our plan of attack is given your current schedule and current uh, parental duties and uh, work duties and husband duties and all the other things you got to do <laughs> that are going to limit the amount of time that you can spend writing tons and tons of code uh, in the foreseeable future for the podcast. And what does that mean for how we're going to go about continuing in the spirit of being the worst, but, um, you know, balancing it out so it works for both of us. So, what we thought we would do is kind of have you in the role of more like a consultant, mentor, code reviewer, trusted advisor, which is basically what you've been doing the whole time. You just wrote a lot more code too, right? Yep. <laughs> and um, I will be taking on the role of uh, sort of like the hobbypreneur, I'm calling it, because uh, what that means to me is uh, I'm a one-person dev team for now. And the hobby part of it means that Hey, I like this for fun. I'm doing it for fun as a podcast. I enjoy conversations with Renat and I'm going to write some code when I feel like it. And because it's a hobby, that means I'm leaning 70% towards fun and preferences that I actually like and 30% towards, you know, actual business requirements and stuff that I would, uh, decisions I would make related to business. Should that change? You know, should I decide? man, I, I really think this is a good financial opportunity or I got to get this thing done faster, I might start making those trade-offs. But for now, if you keep in mind that what you hear us talking about has that preference balance right now and it's the hobby is key because if I jump in and say, Renat, I'm going to drink the Kool-Aid on Azure Service Fabric and I'm basically picking an implementation before I've even done any of the pre-homework. That's not something I don't think we that you would recommend uh, in the real world of business, right? Uh, I'd recommend you to pick a clear brick wall, uh, which has uh, <laughs> basically 20 meters of empty space, so that you'd be able to run up to it and uh, bang your head in there. Exactly. So I think we both agree that this exact approach that you're going to hear us talking about isn't like the most proper way to go about building a successful software business and getting a 
minimum viable product out there as soon as possible by, you know, simplest thing that can work. Um, I'm calling it, I wrote down on my notes here, my MVDAMP, my MVDAMP instead of a MVP, which is a minimum viable, doesn't annoy me product. So there's probably much better ways to achieve this goal faster and not worrying about some of the things that I'll worry about too much in a hobby kind of a thing. Like I want to craft these messages a little bit better. I really want to use actors or whatever. Like that's the hobby dumb decision part of it. So if you're trying to write a, start a software company and you're burning through venture money or your own personal savings account and you really need to make money fast, don't use this approach, right? <laughs> uh, actually, no, I would agree with you. Uh, basically, uh, every startup, it's kind of, a, it's not a business, but it's a organization that is searching for a profitable business model. And they have to do a lot of prototyping, they have to do a lot of planning, and they don't even need to think about the long term, hmm. usually, because uh, they are not going to live in the long term, uh, generally. Sure. And uh, from that perspective, when you're actually trying to search for a business idea, for the one that uh, can sustain you, then actually any technology that allows you to prototype fast without burning out yourself is good. So from this perspective, actually, uh, very messy message contracts are better than uh, polished message contracts. Very messy technology, like in Azure or, or any Microsoft piece, is better than a proper, for example, piece from the Linux and Apache world that will last for ages, but actually requires a lot of development DevOps effort to set up, mm -hmm, especially mm -hmm. if you're coming outside from that stack. So when we're talking about the learning and finding out the best model, not even the best, but survivable model in the short term. So that's the funny, the prototypable technologies, they work uh, quite well. And funnily enough, Microsoft stuff, it's actually quite good for prototyping. Well, we're going to find out, right? I'm sure I'm going to hit some brick walls and there'll be many times for you to say, I told you so or whatever, but that's kind of what we want, right? We're not going to be in perfect uh, unison on uh, approaches for sure. And and you can just laugh uh, either out loud in my face or silently on some of the things I'm going to do. But I'm flat out stating at the beginning that my initial uh, stance on the hobby side of things is I really think Azure Service Fabric is cool. I like how I don't have to think about uh, too much keeping the in amount of nodes up and running and they kind of self-heal and they do they do a lot of the stuff that like when I was uh I'd say a year ago or maybe a little bit more when I was messing around with Project Orleans and uh the actor model and Akka and stuff like that. Like I really liked that mental model that uh it that it like boils it down into some simple kind of components and I really like that thing. But the thing that was annoying was well, cool, now I have an actor framework, but I don't want to go figure out how to manage these nodes and write monitoring code. And the deployment story was kind of annoying. So I never really messed with it too much. But now I've got a magic button in my Visual Studio that says, deploy scalable, upgradable cluster. And uh, we'll find out how that magic button works uh, over time. And when Renat says, see, you should have just put it in Docker, idiot. <laughs> to be determined. Um, so what I thought we would do, Renat, because obviously I'm trying to tie this back into the things that we've talked about before, is um, I actually was listening to some of our early, early episodes from 2012 earlier today about messaging basics and commands and events. And I know that obviously since 2012, 
there's been a significant amount of learning through your experience as it relates to, you know, LOCAD.CQRS version one, and then the rewrite of version two, which I'm kind of familiar with, Happy Pancake and the LOCAD retrospective we talked about in past episodes. And obviously you're doing stuff uh, with SKU Vault now. So given all of that stuff, and I know a lot of our previous conversations are still very applicable. If we take my hobbypreneur environment and my biases <laughs> in, 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 into account, if I'm a one-person show, how would you kind of recap that journey you've been on for distributed system programming and like then lead me to the place where, where do you think I should start? You know, let's get to my next homework assignment, giving all these assumptions I'm just throwing and puking all over the plate to you. Why don't we talk about your learnings and then your recommendation on what I should do next? Okay, so I haven't actually learned that much uh, during the previous uh, few years, except from uh, the fact that my look at security implementation was a horrible, horrible mistake. And uh, actually, uh, I got a perspective how even small false design decision uh, at the early stages of project development if it gets incorporated into the project and then just basically spreads across the code, then this design decision can hurt a lot. And with Locat Securus, this design decision was actually twofold. First, using uh, commands to send intent, for example, from the client to the backend servers mm -hmm. through, uh, via the queues. That was a horrible, horrible mistake, simply because it complicated a lot of logic. Uh, for example, uh, consider you have a usual registration process and uh, the client is entering his username, password, etc., etc., to into the web interface. Obviously, in the usual DCQRS world, uh, this can be sometimes presented as a command. That is command message. And then there comes a problem that when you send the command message to the backend, Eventually, you would need to know, for example, of a new user login or if the registration was successful or not. Mm -hmm. And then the web interface has the only way to learn about the outcome of the registration uh, is by pulling, for example, some view, which will be populated uh, with via the events that will be triggered on the backend. And that actually creates a lot of complexity. So one thing I've learned is to start off by default by not using command messages, but simply have uh, backend services, which can be like, for example, RESTful HTTP with JSON formatting it, that can be called synchronously. Yeah. And that was actually one of my first questions, because when you look back at our very early episodes, like episode two, three, and four, I think, we spent a, a lot of time, um, and you even made it a point in episode two to, or three, actually, to say, um, hey, guys, remember there's the technology piece of this and then there's the conceptual business modeling piece of it that's way more mm -hmm. important and we can replace the implementation anytime we want. And obviously in our last episode, probably don't know if you even remember, but in September of this year, we did the uh, retrospective on those learnings from LOCAD and so, you know we went through your blog post in detail. And, and I knew that commands was one of the things that we talked about earlier that you sort of don't really start with now. So just starting right there, like, so if commands aren't really there right now, like if you were starting with from scratch today, that means you would kind of have like rest front ends that are receiving requests from clients as kind of the command, I guess, that API. Yes, exactly. 
And then once the command is executed, is that when you're generating the event and continue on with the event message side of things? Yes. yes. Okay, cool. Now, I know that I'm getting into the specifics of the implementation, but in the actor model, as I said, I'm kind of leaning towards uh, Azure Service Fabric right now, and their two main programming APIs are basically you use reliable services, which is where you would put these front-end REST API, and then you can choose... Basically, a reliable service can run any executable for the most part. You can put whatever you want there, but it's not the actor programming model. It's just, hey, here's some stuff. You have to do some more work for uh, the communication protocols. But uh, if you want to take on that additional work, you can pretty much run whatever you want in the service kind of approach. And the other option is to implement their actor model, which is similar to like the Orleans kind of thing. And what I was curious about was, Let's say one of my microservices, if, if you will, components, is receiving this request from a REST client, and then it does its stuff, and then I have to generate my event to record my state. Like, should I save that event in, like, document DB? Should I persist it as JSON somewhere? Should I spin up event store? Like, what would you do at the beginning of a project for something like that? At the beginning of the project, I wouldn't actually do any of that. Well, maybe just store stuff in memory. Okay. Simply because, remember like when we were talking about the most important conceptual parts uh, in the beginning of being the worst, yes. that we're saying that commands and events are pretty important. Uh, the rest is pretty much the implementation detail. We don't really, uh, that it doesn't really matter as much. Right. So, uh, my current perspective is that, uh, command intent, like this details we're structuring as commands, uh, event messages are still important. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is uh, one more twist to this plot. The API is actually important. And ideally that, uh, and I'd say in most of the systems, this can be a simple, uh, synchronous API. Okay. So the, the API is important. Uh, in this API usually has methods that, for example, allows you to push commands. Like, for example, an API endpoint for creating a registration, uh, the API endpoint for uh, getting a list of active users. Mm -hmm. And basically, these API methods will be, will generally consist of two types of methods. The ones that change something on the server and the ones that uh, request uh, some views. Mm -hmm. And when starting to build a new product, Ideally, what I do is uh, to try to capture the API service with an easiest possible implementation. Okay. And usually that will be in whatever technology, uh, the API backend will be storing stuff in memory. Okay. So then we spent a lot of time early on, like talking about the words and uh, the vocabulary and, you know, the, the message is the dictionary and the instance is the words and crafting stories and stuff like that mm -hmm. in domain-driven design. And I'm assuming like a lot of those concepts are still applicable, but maybe I'm sensing that maybe instead of crafting those detailed command messages, you would put that kind of thinking maybe into the naming of the API and the structure of the API methods that you expose, I guess. Exactly. Okay. But uh, once again, so previously we had just command messages mm -hmm. and here uh, now we have uh, command requests and maybe like view requests okay so we we just uh, have more uh, detail right now mm -hmm. and in addition to the request detail 
we'll need also to think about the uh, request URL, request route, mm-hmm. and also to think about the like what uh, the request body will look like. It's usually quite similar to the commands, and actually what the response body would look like, what the uh, response codes would be, mm-hmm. uh, and actually. Uh, starting to think about the APA is a direct answer to the question like how uh, would I deal with Orleans actors, for example. Mm-hmm. However, if we were to look at the problem from the business perspective, mm-hmm. then I wouldn't bother with the API. Okay. Because it's irrelevant because people rarely use API itself. Instead, they use some product. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, the product is solution to some of their problems and it's, for example, some web application or it is uh, a desktop application. So if uh, I have to deliver a tiny new project to the customers and to show them that the ID is viable, then I'd actually spend the time implementing the UI while mocking the API memory or even not implementing it first. Hmm. Because the user interface is the most important contract that we're uh, we're going ever to craft. Hmm. Interesting. Because that's what people see. That's what makes people uh, decide if, okay, yes, that's a really good program. It actually captures what I what my problems, and I'm going to pay money for it. Or no, it doesn't solve my problems. I see. And basically, if you have a good API and a relatively good uh, design implementation, but a cruddy UI that doesn't solve any problem, or it's uh, the entire thing simply captures uh, their own business model, like it's not viable, mm-hmm. then you just waste your time. <laughs> However, if you build a very thin, maybe simple uh, UI that is cruddy from the implementation, but actually, like, there is something in that that customers see, then you can start spinning off business model of that. I see. And speaking of the not so good interfaces, uh, consider any accounting program you <laughs> ever uh, discover. Like, the UI <laughs> is pretty nasty there. Yeah. So, I, I think that most likely in the domain that I'm thinking about, and pretty common these days, most likely the initial client experience, unfortunately, because it's kind of a pain, is probably going to be a mobile app. And so I guess what I hear you saying is the initial thing I have in mind would, the mobile app is actually going to be somewhat not that intelligent. It's just really a consumer of the services and the services are doing things in the background to kind of spit data at the client to to help them solve the problem. And so I think I would at least need to mock the behavior of the back end in that client sample to get, kind of get it going. But um, mm-hmm. I don't know how, you know, because that's going to open up a whole different can of worms, right? I've been talking about Azure Service Fabric, and then we get into the other m- world of, all right, is, you know, Xamarin viable and easy enough for me? Or do I look at React on native? Or do I do, uh, you know, uh, Cordova and all that kind of stuff? I don't know if you've had any experience in the mobile realm lately. Or have any thoughts on that? But if I was going to start on the client, that's probably where I would have to start. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, any opinions on uh, mobile frameworks these days? Well, that actually depends on how deeply do you need to integrate uh, your prospective mobile application with the mobile platform. So, if you're simply doing uh, some data entry 
than a mobile-friendly, responsive web site would do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you need to have some deep integration, for example, with contacts, yes, uh, I don't know, or with some specific service that can't be uh, reached through the HTML5 facilities, then it's probably something native. Mm-hmm. And since we have a plenty of uh, mobile uh, frameworks these days, mm-hmm. I'd recommend to try the platform that would allow you to deliver the results faster. I see. That is, that is more interesting to you. So basically, uh, the ability to encourage you, something that you like, mm-hmm. is the primary choice, not mm-hmm. the long-term technology again. Sure. I think given that, I probably, because I've dabbled in that in the past, like I I actually was recently thinking more along the lines of the, the JavaScript Cordova kind of stuff, because I know it can do that. But the only thing that in the last couple of months has changed my mind to look back towards Xamarin again is in this particular case, because it's not really a consumer application I have in mind. Like I don't need it to be the most beautiful, most elegantly responsive, native, perfect experience. I just need something that works across all platforms, looks good enough to see a list of something and integrates with a couple of the native phone features I think even some of the pre-canned sample apps that Xamarin has might be like 75% of the way there for the initial demo client. (laughs) It's possible I could download a sample and tweak it a little bit and uh, have a sample client working. And actually, I have a theory that in order to be successful with a niche uh, product, something like, for example, that helps you to count resources at the construction site or something as boring as accounting <laughs> helper, mm. then your niche application has to look ugly. Otherwise, people wouldn't just understand you. <laughs> so wait, your theory is the, the application needs to look ugly? Yep. Why is this? Because uh, that's what the majority of apps in the niches look like. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. They're so used to vendors giving them garbage-looking green screen, uh, not green screen anymore, really, but that kind of uh, attention to UI, <laughs> that uh, that's kind of what they expect almost. Yeah, well, and a serious thought there is that you don't need a nice interface in order to be successful and, and make money. Sure. I definitely think that's true. I, I, in In this case, I do think that a good enough interface that does a really, really nice job of solving the actual business problem is probably good enough, especially for the initial version or version and a half. So, so I guess, um, I would want to get some clarity on the exact specific use case, uh, that I'm trying to solve initially, see what that minimum vertical slice is as far as what does the client minimally have to be able to do and what would those services on the back end need to do and then how would I mock those out via the API or fake it out or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then um, I guess jump right into some user validation because I do have some domain experts that could try could try it out and say like, yeah, that's something like that is kind of exactly what I'm thinking or, ooh, yuck, no, <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. Now, is that... That I mean, I think everyone, a lot of people listening would would know that that's the general approach that's kind of always recommended, and I don't disagree with it. But have you found yourself like actually using that kind of iterative little minimum minimum UI approach recently to to kind of make sure you're building the right thing, or what do you, what have you actually done in the real world like that? Uh, actually, we're doing something along those lines, but maybe with a little bit more uh, fine graining. So recently at Skivolt, we've uh, pushed a new feature uh, into the open beta, or maybe just beta right now, I'm not sure, called uh, interactive wave picking. 
And I'm not sure if I talked about it uh, on this podcast mm -mm. before. I don't think so. Okay. So, uh, uh, Skivol deals with uh, logistic optimizations. Basically, they help you manage your warehouse if you are a seller, if you sell products to other customers. And uh, there is an interesting problem there that Amazon uh, was addressing, I believe. Uh, it's when you have a list of uh, orders that you have to fulfill and you have a person, a warehouse worker that will walk around the warehouse, like finding items for this specific order. And if you want to make an efficient use of your workers and warehouses, ideally you'd give a worker a list of things that he has to pick. Right. And normally, if he has a list of things, he'll first go for the first order. It could be, for example, a bike wheel and a bike chassis. Uh, pick them, then go to the next order, and hey, the next order also has a bike wheel. So now he has to go back to that place where he already been and pick the stuff there. Right. It's like traveling and salesman problem in a warehouse, kind of. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, what we're doing is uh, creating a feature that uh, automatically like given a list of sales, it will route you through the warehouse in the most efficient way. Saying, okay, first you go to the first closest, uh, location closest to the uh, entry point and pick like 10 uh, bike wheels and put them in the spots on your cart 2, 4, and 5. Then you go to the next location and take these items and put uh, these items in your cart. Hmm. And I believe... Yes, and the first iteration of this project, uh, it actually included a React HTML uh, front-end. Okay. And also, uh, it was actually, it's still targeting uh, the pure in-memory backend, meaning that, like, there is no persistence right now. Oh, right, right, because it doesn't matter. You're still validating. Yes, yeah. and actually people are using because uh, what we're doing there is that the servers, mm -hmm. uh, they don't go down that often, although in Azure that happens annoyingly often at the least opportune uh, moment. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I have a theory that a Windows Server can't run uh, for more than a one month, <laughs> although probably it gets restart more often that than that because uh, Windows is such a modern operating system that it has to restart in order to install service packs. <laughs> yeah, and just yesterday, I logged into one of the uh, support systems uh, we have at Skivolt, the infrastructure, mm -hmm. and that Linux server has been up for 189 days, simply <laughs> because we bought it 189 days or so. Wow. Okay, back to the story. <laughs> and uh, also, while developing new features uh, for this with Picking app, uh, what we're doing is that awesome developers uh, from the SKU vault, they were s starting by implementing a feature in the web UI to see how it looks like, and they were simply mocking the API inside the code. Once they settled down on the implementation, they can just pass this uh, API mock to me, uh, asking, okay, so uh, Renat, get your lazy butt up here. We need uh, the API that is implemented like this, and please implement it in, in the backend. I see. And only then I go into the backend and uh, implement the API. And actually, there is a still a hack that I'm implement. I'll be implementing it here using an in-memory backend. Now, in that initial client, was the client mocking the backend as much as possible, or the whole time, or was it actually talking uh, to something in the backend, or nothing? Uh, actually, when a feature is developed, usually it uses some of the existing API I see. methods. 
but if there is uh, something new, then they will mark it or they will try to get the data through some other less convenient methods. I see. Okay, cool, cool. And then so how did that all work out? That's still an in-progress thing, right? You guys are evolving that client and then they're coming to you to build out the backend API, right? Yes. Well, uh, it's like we're adding a feature by feature. So uh, the web client is already out there. The backend is already out there on production. So we're just uh, adding missing pieces. So then it sounds like, because I know we're coming up on 30 minutes here soon, it sounds like my homework's going to be think about the scenario I want to try to target first and prove out at a very basic level. You know, what are the, the one or two features that would have to be there to be useful at all, I think. Mock it up in a good enough client as much as possible. Have the client fake out those two main features as much as it can without even needing a backend. And then yep. if, if there is something that just absolutely won't work because the client can't fake it out, build some simple, who cares what the API is named or versioned, whatever, just throw it up in the sky somewhere so that the client can talk to it to make the feature work to prove it out. Well, uh, I think that in some cases it's possible to make uh, the client feature work even without some backend APIs mm -hmm. uh, by simply maybe doing uh, the work, all work in there. And then as a matter of evolving the system and making the system more uh, robust, reusable, et cetera, et cetera, we can start extracting the API, adding the telemetry, et cetera, et cetera. That comes just simply down the road. See, I already found a way how to make you do all the coding. <laughs> yes. Now, given like the, to summarize, I mean, I think I know in my mind what I need to go do, but there's a nagging thing in the back of my mind that says, well, wait a second, Carrie. I thought all the smart people started brand new projects with like event storming and context mapping and whatever this and whatever that. And, you know, some, some other kind of thing to validate their idea. Like, is there anything I should be doing on paper that before I start, you know, researching client technology or keeping in mind, you know, this isn't a $2 million dev budget with five people on the team. This is, you know, Renat sitting at home as a hobbypreneur, just getting started. And of course, my natural inclination is like, I want to go download the client and just start writing some code. But is there any like basic um, technique that I would still want to use from a paper perspective? Or what would you actually do if it was you doing this? The first thing. I'd still uh, sit down and start uh, drawing the UIs on a piece of napkin. Okay. That's where it starts. Things like events storming and context mapping mm -hmm. are good when you have a known domain mm -hmm. and you even have a few domains in that uh, domain experts in that field mm -hmm. and you want to build a cleaner domain model so that you'll be able to map your code implementation to that domain model and keep them aligned so that it will be easier to evolve, modify, etc., etc. But the problem with startup experience and your situation is that if you don't have a clue about which domain model would be uh, <laughs> the foundation of your viable product. Yes. So there is no context to be talk to talk about. Right. So there is nothing to model yet. Got so it. first we're trying just to capture. We are trying to prototype. We're trying to see, okay, uh, does this idea uh, look like a viable one? Does this one look like a viable one? And only after the idea, uh, we know that the idea is a viable one as verified by other people, mm -hmm. by uh, customers saying, okay, I want this product. Then we can start bothering about the implementation and maybe modeling the domain. Totally agree. That makes total sense.
Cool. Well, I know what my homework is, and that means uh, go uh, write some stuff on a napkin or probably this graph paper behind me. I will do that. Um, and just full disclosure, I'm not 100% sure, depending upon which idea I go with, like the exact details I'll be able to disclose on the podcast. I'm sure, sure I'll be talking uh, with Renat about all that stuff, but whatever uh, makes sense to share, I certainly will. And whatever doesn't, I will probably just make up some other, you know, apply it to our GTD domain or some other domain that is maybe similar, but maybe not the exact same thing. We'll just see how that goes. It's probably not going to matter that much, uh, how much I share, but, uh, just disclosure in case people want to like, wait a second, how come the stuff you're talking about now doesn't seem like the thing you're talking about in the next episode? It's because not a hundred percent sure who my customer is going to be and if they're going to want me to talk about it and all that fun stuff. So we shall Don't see. Don't worry. <laughs> Uh, Thomas Edison fails, failed, I think, like a thousand times at least before he uh, nailed the recipe for his light bulb. Yes, that's right. I'm I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen here. Uh, I just don't know about the light bulbs ever going to come out, but I'm sure lots of failing will happen. But as long as we're having fun, having conversations with you and the community, learning as we go, that's the 70% hobby part. And if something good comes out of it and that 30% actually puts a dollar in my pocket someday, awesome, even better. We'll see what happens, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. I, at least I hope uh, the final business model wouldn't be adding a donate one dollar to carry <laughs> to the podcast site. Right. That's gonna that's gonna be the minimum viable product. Uh, and then in two episodes from now, I was like, we've got it. I'm gonna put Renat's picture just like Wikipedia on the top of the beingtheworst.com and say, hi, this is Renat. You need to support the community. Please donate on PayPal right now. <laughs> no, that is not the current plan. If we do that, uh, please uh, tell us to give it all up right now. So, Absolutely. All right, Renato. We'll replace uh, my picture with kittens. That would work better. Kittens are better. I agree, I th- especially in the programmer universe. They seem to really like uh, kittens. Um, I don't know what the fascination is, but I guess they're cute, right? So cool. Well, I really appreciate you hopping on here uh, last minute, and uh, we're going to get to our regularly scheduled uh, recording time. And guys... I'm just saying it out there right now. Like, I really enjoy doing this and I'm really hoping that Renat and I can stick to this schedule. We, we think we got a good system worked out here and maybe even like tweet at us, uh, at KC Street or at Abdulin to give us some peer pressure. If, uh, after you see this episode, you don't see anything for like three or four weeks. And if that happens, that means we're failing big time. And I really, really don't want that to happen. So I'm okay with a little nagging uh, on Twitter if needed because I really do want to keep this stuff going. Really enjoy it. Okay, sounds good, and talk to you next week. All right, thanks, guys. Bye-bye.